www.netivyah.org. The Basics of Faith, a five-part series recorded February 1994 in North Atlanta Church of Christ. Part two of five. We have, we have one restaurant in Jerusalem that the owner literally goes to the people and says, listen, if you want to spend a lot of time here, go to the coffee shop. This is a place you come and eat, <laughs> chew fast, and leave. <laughs> and the man has made millions. <laughs> it's a Jewish-style fast food. <laughs> And uh, so you guys can chew, eat, and if you have questions, you can ask questions. Yesterday I did speak about the oneness of God, which is absolute essential to anybody who's going to have biblical faith. You can't believe in more than one God and, and have biblical faith. However you divide that God and slice Him, and describe Him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, at the end you've got to come to the oneness of God. If you don't come out with one God, you better re-examine your faith. The second building block of faith that is absolutely essential, and I'm afraid that is even more lost than the oneness of God in the Christian camp, is what is called Teleology. How many of you have heard of teleology? All right, tell us what it is. None. No, not theology. Teleology. Comes from the Greek. Yes, go ahead. That's right. The study of ends, of purposes. Now. There is, in the synagogue service, three times a day, every Jew ought to be praying the 18th benediction, or what's called the Amidah. It's a prayer that you stand up and you say 18 different short prayers in a chain. A part of these is concerned with the end, or the purpose of all things. Now, in Greek Western way of thinking, the world is eternal, right? History is a cycle that repeats itself. Time is endless, right? But in Middle Eastern, Semitic and Biblical thinking, this is not a Biblical truth. The Bible talks of the world, a time when the world wasn't. There was no world. And it had a beginning, a start. And also the world has an end. The, Bi the, the Bible clearly teaches in the Old and in the New Testament that the world had a beginning and it has an end. Now, this idea of the study of the end of things, the end in the sense of end in time and end in purpose, yeah. is very, very essential 
to the Christian faith. You lose this aspect, you can't call yourself a biblical Christian. You've got to believe that there is going to come an end to this world. Let me show you some passages that are fascinating to me on this, on, on this, uh, from the beginning, just because I'm talking to Gentiles. If I was talking to Jews, I would start reading in verse 4. <laughs> Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, or with the same end, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. And in all these, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they m malign you. But you... Uh, excuse me, but they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Now, this is the word, the end of all things, in the Greek is exactly like the two other previous mentioned purpose. In, in, in verse uh, 1 and in verse 6, he said purpose. And now he says the same word, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now this concept that appears in verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand, is very, very important for the Christian life. Peter, in this case, is describing it as a force, a dynamic force in the life of the Christian that will keep him from falling into the ways of the Gentiles, which is lasciviousness, lust, and the long list of drunkenness and parties and carousals and abominable idolatries and all these things. And I think that a part of the weakness that has entered into the life of the church and the Christians is that the, 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 the idea of the imminent return of Christ and the end of the world has not been taught in the last couple of decades. We are not taught to wait for the end of the world, to prepare for the end of all things. We are not taught that the return of Christ is imminent. I don't know, maybe Bill can tell you, why aren't we teaching this lately? probably interpreted to be a 
negative approach that Russ today is to say. Yeah, well, we could positively go to hell as well. <laughs> you know? uh, because, because this element, this element is an essential biblical doctrine. You know? And, and it is a strong motivator, according to 1 Peter 4, for people to get their act together and to live their lives for God and to be having the to have the strength to suffer for the sake of the gospel knowing that this world is not going to last forever. And this aspect is... is I, I also want to be very positive man. And I also especially like when we talk about women next Wednesday night I want to be as positive as, as possible because there are some women here I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> but but we have to, to 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 really get back to some biblical principles. And this is a biblical principle that actually according to Peter is a power, a dynamic power that motivates and the the, the Christian to live a godly life of loving his fellow men and loving his God and and overcoming the sinfulness of our physical existence. That's what Peter says here in this passage. Look at another passage from the Old Testament from Zephaniah. It's a prophet that is not read very much but actually a very important uh, prophet. From chapter 1, I'm going to start reading for verse, from verse uh, 40. Here, see how, how positive Zephaniah is. <coughs> Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. It is the warrior cry out bitterly. In it the warriors cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and dissolution. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and a battle cry against the fortified cities, against the high-cornered towers. I will bring distress to, on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. For He will make complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, clear teaching. Now, uh, the, the, the interesting thing is, if we go to Amos, chapter 5, we find out that the Jewish people in the time of Amos were, were saying, oh, let's wait for the day of the Lord. How, how wonderful it's going to be when, when, when the day of the Lord comes. And the prophet Amos tells them, just a minute, boys, you know that for you, the day of the, doors of the Lord will be darkness and not light. Yeah. So it's not so sure 
that we should rejoice that the day of the Lord is coming unless we are really ready in humility to face God. In the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky has a discussion between Andrei and the priest of the church. Andre is sick and dying and the priest comes to give him the last rites. And uh, the priest tells him, I know that you're soon going to die and go up there. And if you meet St. Peter or Jesus, tell them, please don't come yet. The church is not ready to receive you. Yeah. And, and sometimes I wonder like this priest in the brothers Karamazov if we shouldn't be praying for the Lord to delay a little longer so that we have another chance yeah. to live up to his expectations but Zephaniah tells us clearly that the world will come to an end and that end will be a terrible end there is an end to our world and we as Christians must not forget that. It is a biblical doctrine that appears all through the Bible. From the law of Moses all the way to the end of Revelation. Yes, sir. Wasn't that prophecy fulfilled with Babylon's destruction of Judah? No. It, it was not fulfilled from ba with Babylon's destruction of Judah simply because the world is still standing. The Jewish nation is still existing. Yeah. Uh, if we check in all the places that describe the great and terrible day of the Lord, we will see there that there is cosmic events that uh, are described and uh, the destruction of the sun and the moon like in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 20 uh, that still haven't happened. This is what is called in biblical scholarship a, a topos. You know, it's a, it's a location. And that location has always the same descriptions. And you can't claim that it was fulfilled until all the elements of it are fulfilled. Now, in the Restoration Movement and in the Churches of Christ, we have been afraid to talk about the end of the world and a very important chapter in Biblical theology simply because we've been afraid that somebody is going to say, you're getting too close to the premillennialists. Yeah. But that mentality has kept us from a lot of good grounds that could have helped us live up and be more like the first century church. We have let fear motivate us on this issue but not biblical thinking. We're afraid somebody, if a preacher starts preaching about the end of the world and the destruction of the world and, and the fulfillment of all these prophecies, well, that's a, well, he's premillennial. Or he's getting close to the premillennial. He's rubbing shoulders with the premillennialists. That's why we have turned against Israel. Israel is not on our agenda in the restoration movement. 
is because the, the, the strict dispensationalists and the premillennialists have made such a strong use of Israel to prove their point unrightly. But we decided if they do it, we won't do it. Yeah? If it's good enough for the Baptist, it's not good enough for us. And we have denied ourselves a lot of very important points of faith because we have not had, the, uh, you know, it hasn't been a part of our, how should I say, agenda in the churches of Christ. It's time we re-examine the Bible. Honestly, and reevaluate our positions according to biblical evidence and not according to things that people have dictated us and, and because they were intimidating individuals like Foy Wallace and others, God bless his soul, wherever it may be. Uh, then we have kept from dealing with the issues. Yeah. And this is one issue, the end of the world, that we need to cope with. We need to deal with. Yeah. That it has gotten to such a ridiculous thing that a few years ago there was a guy by the Mac, by the name of Max King. Yeah. That wrote books that became popular in certain branches of the of the churches of Christ that said Christ is not returning at all. There is no second return. Yeah. Uh, he already returned at 70 A.D. and destroyed Jerusalem and that's the all there is to it. Well, I'll tell you what. I am not associated, will never be associated with any church or group of people that denies the second coming of Christ. It's a heresy of the first degree and it disarms the Christian from some very important tools and influences on his life that keeps him from becoming holy and godly and to fear God and His judgment. It's essential that we learn not only to love God, but to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Now we can't preach strawberry and cream religion. Sometimes you're going to have to have steak. Bill likes that. <laughs> the steak, I mean. Uh, and, 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 of course, we, you know, we haven't studied the book of Revelation. And when it has been taught in the churches of Christ, it has been skimmed over, you know, and the scriptures were, were rested yeah. and not really dealt with. And in my opinion, this is a very important basic building block of Christian and biblical faith. The belief that the world has an end, that there will be an end, and that there will be a judgment day at that end. And in that judgment day, the righteous will be victorious, and the evil ones will be forever damned. <coughs> We can't compromise this basic teaching. It's clearly in the Old Testament, it's clearly in the New Testament. In the words of Jesus himself, in the words of Peter and John, and in Revelation. 
Where is it in the Old Testament? Very clearly stated. Stated that the dead will rise and will be judged. And the righteous will have eternal peace and the evil ones will have eternal damnation. Where is it stated? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, last verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last verse. Open. That wasn't the one that I was thinking of, but let's check. <laughs> <pick. laughs> Ecclesiastes 12, <clears throat> the last verse. The conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be is good or evil. Right. But there is one that's even clearer in Daniel chapter 12. First verses. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time your people everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued or saved and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these or some to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insign will shine brightly like the brightness of the express, no, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to right righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. And the, 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 the ones who uh, are evil will have disgrace and everlasting punishment uh, at that day of judgment. Now this is this is a building block of our faith. This idea, which appears here in Daniel, in Ecclesiastes, appears in Revelation, appears in 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 in, in many of the places, is important not only to instill in us fear of the end of the world. But it has power to give us strength to live a godly life without advertent sin. <coughs> because one of the questions that the, is asked, philosophical questions that is asked constantly by mankind is how come the wicked prosper? And in our world, it's true. Kenny Rogers sings it. He says, some people say that crying don't fade. But I have made enough to live on. All I need is an Arkansas bottle. All I need is a Tennessee bride. Yeah? And that's how the, uh, our world lives. Yeah? But when you consider that there is an end to all these things and that the kingdom of darkness 
and all of its demons will be cast into the lake of fire and that there will be a world without tears and without cancer and without crying and without fear but that the joy of the Lord will rule forever. Yeah. When you consider that, nobody is going to get by with anything. That everybody that got away from it, from the IRS and from his wife and from anybody else will come before the judge of all the ages and will have to pay for it eternally, then you feel good. I feel good that criminals will have to pay for it. I am tired of a system that the criminals get by and the victims remain victimized. Yeah? I am glad that there will be a judgment. And I want to live my life in such a way that I will be ready to face the judge. Not by my own righteousness, but by the righteousness of the Son of God Himself. Yeah? And that is a building block of faith that we cannot give up. And we cannot, you know, allocate it to the hell and damnation preachers of the 40s and the 50s. We have got to preach it positively. And the positive side of this building block of faith is that the righteous will be victorious. That there will be a world without crying and without sickness and without death. Where there will be no tears shed except for the joy of the Lord. And in my opinion, that building block of faith has got to be restored in the life of the church. Some of you have to leave. But I want to share with you two verses. There's four, the same verses appear four times in the Bible. And they explain an aspect of this that is misunderstood oftentimes. The verses are in Psalm 145. You know what? Wait a minute. I'm going to share one more verse about what I've said till now from a very interesting perspective. From Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Who knows that by heart? Zechariah 9, 9. A very important biblical prophecy. I tell you, if I'd asked that in the church in Jerusalem, all the hands would go up. Children and adults. Well, they will all know it. Now, if, since you didn't know this verse, while you're looking it up, I'm going to ask you, who knows the first verse of the Bible by heart? Raise your hands. Higher. The first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Right? Now, who knows the first verse of the New Testament by heart? Raise your hands. Yeah, one hand. Say it. No, not the book of John. The first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1. This is, no, that's not what it says. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A very important verse. The whole gospel is in that, in, in, in that one verse. Yeah? 
I see you guys know the Old Testament better than you know the New Testament. <laughs> now, now uh, Zechariah 9 9. Dan, you have it? Read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. On a coat, the pole of the donkey. Next verse. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. <coughs> the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Talk, keep on. I'll stop it. You, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore Christ to you. I will bend Judah as I bend the boat, and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make your make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The Sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. The Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl, used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of His people. They will sparkle in His hand, in His land, like jewels in the ground. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will be the young grain will make the young men thrive, the new wine the young women. Alright. Uh, the description of this section that starts with the prophecy that we all know was fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he entered the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Right? This is the famous prophecy of the triumphant entry which the apostles quoted in the Gospel. That the, the, the prince of Israel will come riding into Zion on a donkey. Right? Now, the subsequent passage that is supposed to be connected with verse 9 it's not disconnected. Describes a victory over of the sons of God that he calls interestingly and that's what I wanted uh, to bring the prisoners of hope yeah the mourners of Zion the prisoners of hope for me the belief in the end of the world and in the coming of the Messiah and in the judgment day I feel that I am like a prisoner of hope this is my hope. I know that in the flesh and in this history, neither I nor my people will be vindicated. Nor is the church going to be vindicated in this world. The true church of God's people will suffer persecution and disarray in this world. This is the promise that Jesus himself gave to his disciples. That the disciples are not greater than the master. Yeah? And if he suffered the church will suffer. Yeah. I'm not waiting for the world to embrace me. 
and to say we love you. Yeah? So I feel like a prisoner of hope because of the Messiah that entered Jerusalem and refused an earthly crown in order to have the eternal crown in God's kingdom forever. And I think that I wouldn't feel a prisoner of hope if I didn't have a, a, a firm faith in the judgment day and in the end of the world and in an eternal kingdom that is waiting for me to come. And, and in that sense, uh, this is an absolutely necessary building block of our faith. I promise Bill that I will quit the ten till. Not according to my wife, but if you want me, I'll continue. Does anybody have a question that they can answer in two minutes? <laughs> no, I, I have. If, if I have two minutes, I'll uh, finish by giving you these two verses: Psalm 145, verse 17, and Daniel 9:14. The same thing is written in both passages. I'm going to only use now from Daniel 9:14 because I have it open in Daniel. You guys can look up in uh, in Psalm 145, verse 17. Daniel 9.14 says that, Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all of his deeds, or all of his works in the King James, which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now our Lord and so forth. Now this phrase, the Lord our God is righteous in all of his deeds, is a key phrase. This is how the rabbis have interpreted it. I want you to contemplate it. If you take one act of God, take for example the conquest of the land of Canaan. God said go kill women, children, old men, young men, cattle, everything. Take no captives from the seven Canaanite nations. And one would say, look how unrighteous is that God. He's not like the God of the New Testament. Yeah? He's like the God of the Old Testament. Which is the same God, by the way. You just haven't read the whole word of God yet. <laughs> but, uh, but they said, look how unrighteous is God. Oh, commanding Joshua and the men to kill women and children, everything. If you take any act of God, you see a righteous woman in the church. She gets cancer. They say, how unrighteous is God? How could do that to this very dear sister? No act of God seems righteous if you separate it from all of his doings. But when you look over a long time in history and look at all the acts of God together, then you will see the righteousness of God that appears and is visible to all mankind. Even the crucifixion seems a terribly unrighteous thing. How could God take an innocent person without blemish, without sin, his own son, and offer him to die for all mankind? Is this fair? He sinned and he paid for it. It's not fair. It's not righteous. But when you will look at it, in the larger perspective of all the acts of God that he has done, 
then you will see that every single act of God has a purpose. And that purpose is the ultimate righteousness of our Creator. Thank you. Nativia, www.netivyah.org.